You're listening to the Wes and Walker Show. I was able to sound the siren for you guys oh, in a again. victory. Here we you know go what I'm again. saying? Uh, last season. It's Wes. And so I was told that right. the spots are full for this year. And so we need the big dog to come through and pull some weight. Get the Wes and Walker right. Show up there right. so that because we can sound that long. And Walker. You want to get on that siren? And the fact that you brought us the WT, you're in. Only on Sports Radio 92.7 FM WFNC. There we go. Let's go. Wes and Walker sounding the siren. Friday. This is the Wesson Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Big weekend of college basketball. Things are really starting to take shape as we march towards March Madness. Keep the text coming on the FanDuel text line, 704-570-9610. Hit us up on those socials. Hit that follow button. WFNZ on Twitter and Instagram at West Brian underscore 72 at Walker mail at HTB underscore Josh. And most importantly at Wesson Walker on Twitter or X. Now let's get to it, baby. It's time to go to the campus. Kona big, big weekend in ACC basketball. They are tremendous matchups, but we are going to start with North Carolina and Virginia, a place that has been a house of horrors of sorts for the Tar Heels. And this is going to be a tremendous matchup, but we know that we've seen Virginia as of lately. They got trounced by their rivals, the Virginia Tech Hokies. They are limping into this matchup, to say the least, with a very strong North Carolina squad coming in, even though their play of late has been topsy-turvy. But this is a Tar Heel team that I think would really want to get this one in Virginia. Walker, man, what do you think about this matchup coming up tomorrow at 4 p.m.? Well, I do agree with you that I think North Carolina does want to win this game. I do agree with that, that they would probably want to win in Charlottesville. But it has been tough for them. I do think that this is the time where Carolina would have enough athletic prowess over Virginia. They seem like the better team, but we know that Virginia is a squad that can sometimes make Carolina play to their pace. That's been a problem in years past. Can that happen again with R.J. Davis, with some of these other guys that are able to get out in transition? That's going to be really hard for Virginia to do, but they've done it in the past. I am I trust Carolina with their defense, though. I, even if it's fallen off maybe a little bit here in the second half of the season that's already transpired, I do think this is a defense that isn't going to be blown away by what they're going to go up against in uh, Charlottesville. So give me Carolina, and I think it's because of the defense that they win this game. Do we think that this is going to be a low-scoring game because these two teams, they definitely play uh, pretty good defense. And when you look at this thing, as we talked about, UVA has won the last eight games at John Paul Jones. The H.J. games are the most consecutive losses for Carolina at any one arena or at any opponent's home court. But Carolina's the top-scoring team in the ACC and in league play. Virginia allows the fewest amount of points in the league, uh, both overall and in ACC games. And so these two teams rank one and two in the league in field goal percentage defense, while UNC is first by percentage in defending the three, and Virginia is third. 
I think the Tar Heels are going to go in and get this thing done because I just don't think Virginia has enough firepower. You've got R.J. Davis that's ninth in the nation in scoring. Carolina leads the ACC in rebounding. Armando Baycott and Harrison Ingram rank one and two in all games while Ingram leads and Baycott is second in ACC action. Fitty, are you nervous coming into this matchup? What are the keys for Carolina to come out victorious? I mean, when you lose in a building eight straight times, you don't feel very confident going in, but you know, I still think this is the best team the ACC has to offer. I think Carolina's a national title contender. This is a game you should win if you are one of those types of, of teams. And so um, I think the biggest thing is is to not, you know, get hit in the mouth early because you know Virginia is going to come out looking to respond and bounce back after what happened the other night, scoring 41 points and getting beaten by 30 by your rival. And so I think if Carolina can just dominate the glass – and control the tempo that way, that's their that's the best way for them to win this game. I do think they can win this game 56-50, 60-56. Oh, yeah. Which is something that in years past wasn't the case. They had to get the game into the 70s to have a chance. If this becomes a game like it was at Clemson for Carolina back in January and they got to win at 60-55, to 55, they're more than capable of doing just that. Ryan Dunn has been excellent defensively, may just win Defensive Player of the Year in the ACC. He's also their leading rebounder as a guard. We keep going back to it, but Carolina really should just destroy them on the boards. Like, you have to win with that advantage because everybody else averages below four. Like, the next guy up is Buchanan at 3.4. And so, if you can just make sure Dunn doesn't crash enough and Baycott gets you 10, Harrison Ingram gets you 10, everybody else just doing their job there they should be able to get this job done on the glass and so you're right like I, I know we keep harping on it but man that's the thing if they allow Virginia to hang around within like I don't know seven of their total rebounds then yeah Cavaliers just might get it done in the game before that at 2 p.m. Duke will travel to Winston-Salem where the Demon Deacons are 45 and 5 at home since the 2021-2022 season they are undefeated 14 and 0 in Winston-Salem they are since we always love to talk about Wake and their tournament chances they're now 21 in Kempom, 24 in Torvik, and 27 in Net. Steve Forbes has defeated Duke once as the head coach of Wake Forest, and Duke has won seven of the last eight meetings, including last season's two-point win, and including beating my Demon Deacons uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And when you look at this matchup as well, they've already seen each other once. Wake came close. We know the type of magic that the Demon Deacons can put on uh, at home, but this Duke team seems to really be rounding into shape. We talked about how good they've been as of recent. They've won five in a row. This is going to be a tremendous matchup, but I feel pretty confident uh, in Wake Forest in the way that they play at home. And I think the fact that when you have, again, my theory that when you have two pretty good teams that play each other, more than likely they split on each other's home court. Give me the Demon Deacons to take care of business uh, against Duke and get an all-important quad one win that Joe Lenardi can take and shove it up. Never mind. Mm. Go ahead. All right, Walker Mail, what you got? Duke, mm. Duke has been so good lately, winning five straight. They've been beating teams by double digits in a lot of scenarios. Wake Forest, it wasn't. Against Duke or against uh, Wake Forest, Duke was able to separate after Hildreth, I think, scored a low post bucket. And then Duke separated themselves within the last like seven minutes of that contest. I think Duke wins this one and it really hurts Wake Forest even more. So I want Wake Forest to win. I hope they do. I think Duke ends up coming out on top. I just Wake Forest, man. 
They're a roller coaster. <laughs> well, not at home, no. At home, they've been pretty consistent, and they lead the league in home scoring uh, as well. So, like I said, I don't know what it is. I can't explain it either as mm-hmm. to why they are so good at home. But I think it continues. Fitty, what say you on this matchup? I think Wake Forest wins. Right now, they're the 69th team, according to Joe Lenardi, right. which is a nice place to be when you're on the bubble. This win puts you puts you in the field. And so we've seen Duke be shaky away from home. They are coming off a 30-point win at Miami earlier th- this week. But I think Steve Forbes knows it, man. Like, you can't put together three straight quality seasons in terms of win total but have three or but have no NCAA tournament appearances. You win this game, you avoid a typical Wake Forest loss, you're in the field. And so I think Wake Forest beats Duke to solidify themselves as a tournament team. All right, Walker Mail, Charlotte and Tulsa. They will get it on. The 49ers are 11-3 against AAC opponents. They average 69 points and have outscored opponents by four points per game. Over their last 10 matchups, they are 8-2 with their opponents averaging 66.5 points. And the 49ers have been shooting 46% from the field. I know you're going to pick your 49ers, uh, but how great do they look when they bounce back from that uh, tough loss they had against Memphis? I think, yeah, I'm going to pick Charlotte here, and they need this game too if they want to have any shot of winning the regular season in conference because they got a huge matchup against South Florida at home on March 2nd. And if they can win this game on the road against Tulsa, they'll have a decent break. Here they are. They have this game on February 24th, tomorrow. And then they'll play March 2nd. So you got a, a few days before you play your next game at home. I I hope that that actually does wonders for this squad because right now they're behind FAU and they're behind South Florida for that conference lead. So the, Tulsa's only 500 in conference play. They've struggled against teams on the road, but still find a way to win the game even, even in the second half if they allow those guys to get back in it. So I, I just can't wait for the South Florida game. I hope they're not overlooking Tulsa also getting ready for the Bulls once they come to halt. Yeah, that's going to be a very anticipated matchup. Fitty, do you see Charlotte having any problems going on the road and taking on Tulsa? Yeah, he went to you, Fitty. It's okay. I know how you accuse me of not listening. I know you're doing other stuff as well, but Wes went to you there. Yeah, I just oh. actually, do you think, uh, how you think Charlotte's going to fare on the road at Tulsa? I think they'll bounce back because I think they're – they're a well-coached basketball team, and they were competitive the other night before they weren't competitive in that second half at Memphis. I don't think you know their their best players will be that bad again. Um, and this game's important because they got to stay in the hunt to get a regular season title because seeding is going to be important for them. They need to be as high a seed as possible in the conference tournament because their only way into March is if they win the AAC tournament. All right. Well, other games of note this weekend, South Carolina will take on Ole Miss. South Carolina is one of 16 teams in the country with multiple top 10 victories this season. They've got four of those, and they are one of only four teams in the nation with a top five road win. But in Oxford, Ole Miss leads the series 15-4, even though the Gamecocks have won their last two games in Oxford over the past two seasons. App State that smacked Old Dominion just last night. They will take on Marshall. They will go on the road again. And their road conference win last night marked the third win number 13 in Sunbelt play, which broke their previous record for Sunbelt wins in a season that was set in 2021-2022. And then Clemson, going back to the ACC, Clemson uh, will take on Florida State. Clemson and Florida State are tied for fifth in the ACC with Pittsburgh 
and NC State. So this is going to be an interesting matchup for the Tigers as well. They have made at least nine three-pointers in four of their last five games. In ACC play, though, they have shot well from three-point range on the road, averaging 38%. But at home, they shoot just 29%. Do any of these games have real intrigue for you or and add Boston College and NC State into the mix of that as well, or is there any upset potential in any of these matchups? Yeah, Kevin from Boone, by the way, let's go app. We'll see if the Mountaineers can continue it. I think South Carolina at Ole Miss is going to be interesting just because South Carolina's had a couple falls here yeah, recently. Yeah, looking a little bit rough lately. And they're an eight seed right now, according to Joe Lenardi. So we'll see if South Carolina can get back on track. Just some house cleaning on my part, by the way. I said they were behind. I meant beside Florida Atlantic. But even Charlotte is in front with the same record in conference as FAU at 11-3 and because, of course, Charlotte beat FAU. And that's what got them going this season. So Charlotte's still second in front of the Owls, just to make that clear. Watman from Richfield, making sure that I know that. South Carolina Ole Miss, to answer your question, going back to it, I hope the Gamecocks can get this figured out again so they don't have this big old choke job and then fall out of the NCAA tournament. I don't expect that to happen, but it's still possible. It's still possible. I hope Gamecocks uh, end up beating the Rebels this weekend. All right, well, when we come back, we're going to jump back into Carolina Panthers talk. Are the Panthers really the NFL's biggest rebuild? That and a whole lot more on Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Welcome back, folks, to the Weston Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ, coming at you on a Friday to close out your week. We thank you for joining us. And uh, during the break, we got to see a nice tweet from Joe Person to give the Panthers fans a little pep in their step as they head into the weekend. So Brian McCarthy put out a tweet at NFLPR guy that the salary cap for the 2024 season has been set at $255.4 million per club, an unprecedented $30 million increase per club. NFL is just printing money over there with an additional $74 million per club payment for player benefits, including performance-based pay and benefits of former players. And so what does that mean for the Panthers? It means a huge increase in salary cap gives the Panthers $40.2 million in space per over the cap. Earlier estimates had Carolina with $28.6 million in cap room. So they got a little bit more Skrilla to get out there and do some shopping, Walker. Does that make you even more excited for free agency? It helps Carolina, and I think it helps Carolina maybe a little bit more so than other teams where everybody's cap goes up, but with Carolina especially having this franchise tag that they have to figure out if they're going to use on Brian Burns, which we all anticipate that they will. It gives them holding rights with Brian Burns. So you put him on the tag and you still control a lot of that situation while also having money left over to negotiate with other free agents. And so that's a big deal. And 30 million unprecedented raise, as you mentioned with the Brian McCarthy tweet, yeah, that helps Carolina quite a bit. It's hilarious that we've been talking about the cap all day today, more so than usual. And today's the day it changes. I wish we would have had Mike K on just a little bit later to help us out even more so. But as we were asking earlier in the show, when Mike joined us on the Body Work Plus guest hotline, okay, do they have enough left over 
to bring back Brian Burns, Derek Brown, and Frankie Louvu, signing them to the long term? The answer was yes, even before this raise. So then we asked, could you keep all those guys and still go after a top-notch wide receiver? Well, it's going to be hard, but you can restructure contracts. Maybe you can save some money cutting players, and then maybe you can go about it that way. But also the second tier of wide receivers out here, that's a lot better than what it used to be. So great. You even have a little bit more wiggle room there now that you can go out and find your wide receivers, maybe offensive linemen in free agency, keep Brian Burns on this tag. It's good news for Brian Burns, too, by the way, because now it's like, okay, well, great. Now all these teams benefit. That's true. That's true. It helps Carolina a lot. But Brian Burns is seeing this, and now he wants more money. So now Brian Burns is like, hmm. Oh, you got some more money? Give me some more money. That's right. So now it's not even necessarily. Straight cash, homie. It's not even necessarily battling with Nick Bosa, Micah Parsons. It's not even battling with those guys as much anymore, even though that's clearly still here. Now it's, all right, well, I'm battling them, and you got a lot more money. What's, I don't know, if, if I wanted to be a certain percentage of the cap, if I wanted to make up a certain percentage of the cap, then I still want that same percentage, but the dollar amount goes up. So, yeah, it's people are going to be getting paid, but also Carolina, let's just remember, too, they benefit from this as well because they can keep Brian Burns on the franchise tag, figure that situation out, while also being able to still use that side money to go after other free agents where usually you might be locked up not being able to do so. All right, so continuing on with Panthers talk, Frank Schwab, NFL writer for Yahoo Sports, put out a recent article saying that the Panthers – are the league's biggest rebuild. And he was talking about the obstacles that they are going to face, uh, this, that, and the third. And so the question is, are the Panthers truly the NFL's biggest rebuild? And so you look on the surface, the 2-15 record, you missed the playoffs, all of the dysfunction uh, that has happened with the Carolina Panthers. And so you ask yourself, is this indeed the biggest rebuild? Now, this is a franchise that just in 2015 was in a Super Bowl. And I said, and so... That doesn't necessarily lend a lot to last season. But when you think about rebuilds, I think about either generational rebuilds or seasonal rebuilds. And I think right now the Panthers, even though that they have missed uh, the playoffs for the last six seasons, that I do think that this is certainly a heavy rebuild. But I think the Panthers, I truly do feel like the Panthers could be one of those teams that does turn it around quickly because you look at how many – teams have seasons to where they lose games by one score or less and then they're able to flip that around the next season because and I say that too because of the way it happened for the Panthers this year you come into this season you sniffed uh the playoffs almost you are right there battling for the division at the end of the season so you're coming into this year feeling like with the pieces that you got that you're going to be able to get over that hump but it didn't work that way it went backwards offensive line regression we've talked about it uh, ad nauseum. So I would call the Panthers probably the biggest seasonal rebuild. But when I think about generational types of rebuilds, I'm thinking about the Commanders. I'm thinking about the Jets, teams that are just bad year in, year out, bad ownership, bad decisions all of the time. And I don't necessarily get those vibes from Carolina. Now, Tepper is starting to change that just a little bit with his antics and some of the things that have happened. But at the end of the day, you still feel like with some of the aggression that's been had towards trying to go out and get a franchise quarterback, how Tepper was trying to get in on every single deal that he could to try to get it. 
I feel like that he does want this team to be successful. He just is having a tough time figuring out how to navigate his own uh, personal behavior towards that goal, uh, as well as making the right decisions for the team with coaches, et cetera. But I would call them the biggest seasonal rebuild. What what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I think when you have two wins and you have a bunch of areas that you need to upgrade, it's perfectly fine to call them the biggest rebuild in the NFL. And even generationally, we can think of teams that have been bad for a very long time. Cleveland, you wouldn't call a rebuild right now, but Cleveland is one of those teams that you think of. Detroit, same thing, but they're able to get out of it. And here they have a successful year. They're going to be a Super Bowl contender, but they have been terrible for quite some time. Carolina didn't have that type of history, having reached the Super Bowl a couple of times since their 1995 inception. The thing is, that history, it's not gone away. We still love that history, but it changes once David Tepper takes over as owner. And once you have that kind of owner at the helm, then it shifts. Things change. In fact, he's doing his best to make sure that everything changes and some for the better. Maybe the concerts. He would have you believe that that's better. Concerts, food. Yeah. You know, he brings a lot of stuff. All, it, all that know? stuff. All that stuff. But the football has not been better. The football has been pretty terrible. I like the decisions that have been made so far. We'll see if Dave Canales can really be the head coach to turn this thing around. I hope Dan Morgan doesn't do a lot of the same things that Scott Fitterer did that were bad draft choices that contributed to a team that couldn't find enough talent where we all thought this was going to be a team that at least was close to 500, maybe like six wins, something like that, not two. And it went about as poorly as you could possibly imagine. I don't want that to happen anymore, but I have no problem with this being the biggest rebuild, you know, according to Frank Schwab on Yahoo Sports. Like, I get it because of the way how how terrible it was and how many mistakes you need to fix. Plenty of mistakes all across the board. So, two, we've been talking about to this point in the show, signing Frankie Louvu, signing Brian Burns, extending uh, Derek Brown as well. Do you think that that is a smart way to go about business to invest heavily in your three defensive stars? Do you feel like that that's the correct way to go and they're doing the right thing? I've always been a fan of keeping the guys that develop and turn out to be good players that you draft. I hate watching those guys leave and perform well with a different team. Yeah, I, I'd like to pay Brian Burns. Brian Burns is a little bit different because now that the cap has gone up, I, without having done enough research with us only knowing for about like 15, 20 minutes with the cap going up, who knows? I still don't know what that situation is going to look like, but that's the only guy that I would really consider trading. I'm paying Derek Brown, and I'm getting up there if he wants it. Frankie Luvu, I'm paying Frankie Luvu. If we've wanted linebacker depth ever since Luke Keekley has gone away, and then you go find one guy on the cheap, and he gives you a couple of really good years, it's time to reward that player. I want somebody that is a pillar of every single unit of the defense. Defensive line. At least you have Derek Brown if you do trade Brian Burns. Linebacking core. Frankie Luvu is certainly a one in this league. J.C. Horn. He's got to stay healthy. No doubt about it. But when he's on the field, he is a number one cornerback. And you even have Xavier Woods, who I feel good about at the safety group, right? Every single group that you have, you got somebody that you can rely on and feel good about. I don't want those guys to leave the organization and then go help whatever it is whatever team that they get traded to or sign elsewhere with. So, yeah, I they need a lot of help offensively, but I don't want – I want to keep strengths to strength. And that means bringing all those guys back. Yeah, I think that 
you're correct in that. And I think that even Derek Brown, you know, paying him near the top of the market, I don't think hurts you a ton. And I think Frankie Louvu is going to get a reasonable contract. I don't think it's going to be anything that's going to really, really hurt you. But with him hitting free agency and being able to get out on the open market, things could get tricky. And that's going to be the fascinating part about this whole thing. But I think as far as this whole uh, Brian Burns thing, I think in the short term, I think the Panthers are winning because if they're able to franchise him at $21.7 million, then I think that that is a very, very reasonable number uh, for one of the better young pass rushers in all of the game. And so I think that you're not overextending yourself. You're keeping your stars. Hopefully you can get something done long-term with Brian Burns. But I think as is for next season, if you go into next year with Brian Burns on that franchise tag, you sign Derek Brown, uh, maybe you get him an extension done this offseason, which I think they probably will. And then Frankie Louvu's uh, going to get a nice new deal as well. So now I, I don't think it hurts them too bad to be able to do this because, again, they're inside of that rookie window with Bryce Young. They've got that for the next three seasons. So I think if they did want to splurge on some guys, and it's not like they have a guy that they need to pay premium dollars to like a, a Chris Jones in Kansas City and a Legereus Sneed, two guys that you're going to have to pay at the top of the market or like the Dallas Cowboys where you have to pay Dak Prescott, CeeDee Lamb and Micah Parsons. All of these guys are probably going to reset the market at their respective positions. And so that's going to be a tricky uh, spot for them to be in as well. But I think for the Panthers, I think they're sitting right where they want to be as far as retaining uh, their three star players on defense. Go ahead. Something? Nope, oh, no, I was going to say I thought about you because uh, one player that was brought up as I was uh, looking around that's going to be a free agent, you really uh, stood on the table for this guy during his draft, and I did as well. I thought that he was going to be a superstar, and a guy that is going to be a free agent that's going to be available, and I wonder if the Panthers may look to see if they can bring him uh, back down. It's a hell of a tease. Isaiah Simmons. Okay. Yeah, Isaiah Simmons is a guy, and we know that he's been – uh, a disappointment to this point. I mean, he's had some productive seasons, but this is a guy that you talk about uh, the scheme fit. Okay, coverage has really been a main area of concern for him and as far as him just being able to absorb playbooks and being able to do everything. But I think that Evero is a guy that we talked about when he got here. He loves versatile players. He loves to be able to do stuff. Now, it didn't go so well with uh, Jeremy Chan, but what would you think about the prospects of bringing Isaiah Simmons in uh, to be that outside linebacker, perhaps on the other side of Brian Burns? And not that he would necessarily be a starter, but maybe he could come in and be a productive role player, or maybe the light turns on and you get him here, a la Frankie Louvu, to where's a guy that hasn't been uh, super productive at all of his spots previously, because he's been a two at this point. But then you bring him here, and maybe the light turns on. I, yeah, it's it's hard for me to quit on that kind of talent, but it hasn't worked <laughs> out for him so far. So the fact that Arizona was willing to give up on him and the fact that he's played four years in the league and it hasn't necessarily worked out a ton, that you wouldn't make him a priority. He doesn't help you win your run defense. That's something that he's not going to help you out with. But, you know, if you pair him alongside a Shaq Thompson and a Frankie Luvu, and you also have him a part of that group – then maybe you don't necessarily need him to stop the run as much because in coverage, at least three of the past four years, when he's been in coverage, he's finished in the green, according to Pro Football Focus. This past year with the Giants specifically, he played 200 coverage snaps, and he was one of the better cover guys in the NFL in just those coverage snaps. Now, it's very different, but it's coming along strong if it's very mu- if it's 
what have you done for me lately type of stuff that you're evaluating, then, okay, this is somebody that does a good job. Maybe Isaiah Simmons actually complicates, excuse me, not complicates, that would be bad, compliments everybody (laughs) well enough. So Frankie Louvu is somebody that's good at rushing the passer. If Frankie Louvu does a nice job in stopping the run, but we've talked about his coverage and it's below average to average at best at times. Isaiah Simmons coming in and then you just put him on whoever that guy is. You can be real versatile. Yeah, like it's easy to talk yourself into that type of player. Uh, he can get you in trouble for sure. Probably gets me in trouble. But you can certainly talk yourself into that type of player with everything that, in theory, he should be able to do. Yeah, and he had his best season coverage-wise. So I stand corrected there as far as with the Giants once he was able to get there. Before that, he had some solid, not spectacular uh, grades there. But he could be a guy to bring in depth piece, could be uh, versatile for you on special teams as well. But I think that that would be an interesting guy uh, out there for the Carolina Panthers that, you know, maybe they bring him in and maybe, you know, him just being close enough uh, to Death Valley could bring him back to what he once was uh, in the Valley. And so, uh, but just looking at the offensive side of things, when we've been talking about that too, as far as uh, investments, Walker, has there been any other receivers that you've had your eyes on that may be kind of a, a, a bargain type of young receiver that you like that's out there uh, in free agency? Well, I mean, I, I can't quit a lot of these guys. You keep bringing up Curtis Samuel. Yeah, I actually about that yesterday, about, about Curtis Samuel, and he's going to be out there on the market as well. Is this the type of guy that you feel like could come back to the panel? Oh, I would love it. Out? I would love it. <laughs> Curtis, is, I think Curtis is really good just for what his role is, and you know, he continues to be a useful weapon for some of these younger quarterbacks. I, I don't know if they would bring him back. I guess it is a different regime, so Maybe Dan Morgan does like Curtis Samuel compared to Scott Fitterer, who I believe was here when they decided not to bring him back. I think that's right. But I'm I'm continuing to look down at the list and trying to find some of these guys that might make sense. I heard Mike K bring up Gabe Davis. Yeah, that's a guy that I targeted early in the process that I said I think would be a good prospect for the Panthers to bring in that could really help and provide, I think, quality depth. Your vertical threat, if you look at his projection – He's projected anywhere from like 10 to $12 million on a one-year deal. I don't know if that goes down just for more security if you put more length as far as years go. But Gabe Davis, he's certainly scary enough. He's still an upgrade. That's the thing. You bring in a lot of wide receivers out there on the market. They're going to be an upgrade over everybody that they had last year outside of Adam Thielen. So if Gabe Davis comes in here, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, uh, beggars can't be choosers. And... (laughs) I'm begging for a good wide receiver, certainly that can separate downfield. And Gabe Davis could be that guy to help them out, just stretch the field a little bit. Hey, throw it up and watch him go get it because he's been able to do that with the Josh Allen. So Gabe Davis makes sense to me. Well, he's a guy, too, man, that, you know, he could end up being a very good value pick because the tweet that he put out when he said his goodbye to Buffalo. I mean, he threw out some numbers out there that really makes you think as far as his first down rate. Uh, was first in the NFL from 2020 to 2023. His touchdown rate was first. His average depth of target, yards per reception, explosive reception rate. Uh, His 33 total touchdowns was 10th, but all the other categories aforementioned he was first in. And uh, But then he points out, too, at the bottom that his 15.8% target rate was 47th uh, in the NFL. And so when he gives you these types of numbers, this is nothing to sneeze at. And this is a guy that you could get for a really good price. And you talk about the target rate. Well, he comes to Carolina, he ain't got to worry about that. 
He's going to get plenty of targets uh, from Bryce Young. So I think that this could be a guy that could really be a steal and free agency for some team. I think he's going to get more. I wonder exactly how much he thinks that's going to go up, especially with the type of football that he plays. Because if you think of Gabe Davis, you think his strength is going downfield. He's catching the bombs from Bryce Young. So if that's the case, th- those guys don't get a lot of targets when you're trying to move the chains and doing the possession type of receiver stuff. And so I wonder just how much that target share is going to go up. And my thing is, too, remember, Stephon Diggs was the number one right wide receiver for them for a while. And he right? complained about not getting enough targets from Josh Allen. Exactly. So if that happened, then okay, whatever. He was still getting more targets, at least at the beginning. But then as we shifted to the second half of the season, remember Stephon Diggs wasn't getting targeted. It was actually a legitimate complaint. They weren't throwing his way anymore. And I don't even know if Stephon's going to be there with that team because of how you know much problems they've had on both sides uh, with Josh Allen, whether it be with Buffalo and Stephon Diggs, whoever's fault it is, they've had their issues. But even if that's the case, then who does it shift more towards? It's not like Gabe Davis was just torching dudes after they didn't stop or after they stopped throwing to Stephon Diggs. Like, I don't know. It'll, Gabe Davis would be an interesting guy. I got so, I got one more for you. Uh, in that same time span, a wide receiver is averaging 800-plus receiving yards, 8-plus touchdowns, and 17-plus games per season. He threw up the targets for some of the best. C.D. Lamb, 609 targets. D.K. Metcalf, 542. Mike Evans had over 560. Stephon Diggs, 720. Tyreek Hill, 717. He had 336. And his numbers were right in there with those guys as far as the last three years uh, with those metrics that I gave you. So it'll be interesting, man. I, I think he could be a guy, though, like I said, for Carolina, that they could find uh, maybe not in the bargain bin, but not have to overexert themselves and a the guy that could come in and be really productive. It's Flashback Friday. We're bringing it back for you folks, and that's going to be coming up next here on the Wesson Walker Show, Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ. Let's go back in time. It's Flashback Friday. Let's go way back. Way back in time. It's Friday. You ain't got no job. Uh-oh. What? My time machine has been activated. Time machine? I didn't know you had a time machine. All right, Rupert. Prepare to time travel. Let's go all the way back in time. February 23rd, five years ago, six years ago. We're bringing it back. Flashback Friday during the offseason. And we bring up some of the top storylines that we were discussing on this day years ago. And here's one that was actually being talked about even during the Super Bowl surrounding the Carolina Panthers. Many people brought up the debate between should you pick this guy or that guy as they were battling it out in the 2017 offseason when the Panthers drafted Harrison Butker, the kicker, out of Georgia Tech. And he was going against Graham Gano in the preseason, in training camp, the offseason. Eventually, Carolina would choose to keep Graham Gano, the veteran, over the rookie that they drafted. And this was the question that we had on some radio show way back in the day. Hmm. Should they have kept Harrison Butker over Graham Gano? Would you consider bringing in another young kicker, drafting one in the seventh round again? End of the topic. See, I think when people talk about this, most people will tell you, look, it's easy to look at it here as we have hindsight, watching Harrison be one of the best kickers in the NFL with one of the best teams in the NFL. He's been amazing. This year, he was just flat-out ridiculous. Even so, remember, the next year, Graham Gano actually, I think he led the NFL in field goal percentage, if I'm not mistaken. 
part of the thing that people had against Gano was that during the big kicks, he didn't deliver all that much in that playoff game against the Saints. Missed a pretty crucial one. But I still think Graham Gano overall was the right call. I think there was more of a debate to be had than people make it seem out to be. Like, there was a couple of days where I think Graham Gano actually missed a little bit, and I, I... Carolina kept Harrison Butker on the roster a couple of games before they had to drop him and then put him on the practice squad. They clearly valued him. Kansas City signed him off the practice squad and history was made. But that battle was pretty interesting between those two guys and Carolina Panthers fans often like to bring it up. And now that Butker has the rings and with some of the things that he's done his postseason uh, play now, I think he's definitely vaulted himself into the maybe not necessarily the pantheon of kickers, but he's on his way there if he keeps this thing up. I mean, what have we had over the years? Adam Vinatieri uh, has been a generational kicker as far as his game winning antics. Justin Tucker, we know what he represents, arguably the greatest kicker of all time but Harrison Buck I think when it's all said and done I think he could end up being on that Mount Rushmore kickers why is it always why does it always seem like the best teams also have the best kickers because they know that it takes all three phases to win this thing yeah man. but but they also it also a little bit of luck has to be involved right like here they get Harrison Butker and he's amazing I guess he gets a lot of opportunities with extra points as well but Harrison Butker with Kansas City Pat Mahomes, a guy that we're comparing to Tom Brady in the NFL. All right, he goes to the Chiefs. Best offense a lot of the times in the NFL. Justin Tucker, Baltimore, just continually makes it to the postseason. We could go to Adam Vinatieri playing with the GOAT. Mike Vanderjack was awesome for a little while when he was playing with Peyton Manning. I don't know what happens here. Well, I mean, when you think about it, how many different stories in the NFL that do we see that are streamlined where – they are definitely their share of those in the league where you have a Peyton Manning comes in as a number one draft pick and ends up number one overall pick and ends up just as good as you think he's going to be. But Butker's case, as far as him bouncing around, ending up in Kansas City and everything coming together, that's basically what the NFL is built off of. Guys that are bounced around the league or guys that are low draft picks that just end up in the right situation at the right time and well, end up becoming an all-time great. And I guess that's true. Like, Harrison was talented enough to get drafted. If you're a kicker and you get drafted, then you're... Yeah, you got a keg. Yeah, How to keg. You're, you're a top-notch guy. Yeah. And, and Carolina didn't want it. Remember, they kept two kickers on the roster for two weeks because they were trying to trade them. Nobody could talk themselves into trading for him, but they clearly valued him in drafting him and then keeping him on a 53-man before eventually dropping him. And so they knew what they had. It was just, man, we if we're going to win, that was, a, that was a postseason team. And so it's not like, okay, well, we're going to lose anyway. We'll just keep the younger guy because we think he'll be better. So I, I got the notion as to why they kept Graham Gano. Let's go to the NBA just for a moment. This is 2017. I was continuing with this. All these topics are actually from 2017, but we were continuing to talk about the NBA because a lot of news is breaking there. I had a topic about Kawhi Leonard. Is it possible that he eventually leaves San Antonio? Is this the beginning of the end for the San Antonio Spurs? Of course, in 2019, 2018, 2019. So the next season, they would trade Kawhi Leonard for DeMar DeRozan, Jakob Pertl, and they would even throw Danny Green in there, which wasn't just like some flippant throw-in or shouldn't have been. Danny Green really helped Toronto win a championship alongside Kawhi Leonard, and it was so weird, like especially now with the whole player empowerment era. Kawhi Leonard did not agree with the training staff down there in San Antonio. And then we had the whole Kevin Durant thing. It was weird that he goes back out there after being injured. And then you see the Achilles pop 
once he goes out there. Big, big problems between players and the training staff for quite a while. And Hornets fans would have you to believe that's still going on with Charlotte. <laughs> yeah, man, it's been uh, crazy. And yeah, I remember that whole thing with Kawhi. It was one of the more bizarre things that you've seen in NBA history, man. And it still amazes you how these NBA teams, NFL teams are worth billions of dollars and don't invest in the absolute best in their training staffs. I never understand how they have these discrepancies and these trainers not doing what they need to do or players disagreeing with what's going on and teams not having the best of everything Mm -hmm. when you're worth billions. Continuing to go back, man, is it really seven years ago? Because I'm doing the 2017 thing. That's crazy. That's crazy. It feels like it was three years ago. Yeah. Anyways, February 23rd, 2017, what we were talking about, Zach Lowe writes a piece on ESPN that gets a lot of traction. He writes about the NBA's contemplation on a postseason play-in game. And then we talked about some of those thoughts. How did you guys receive it? The Hornets Invitational? It was the Hornets Invitational. (laughs) It's the James Borrego Invitational. Just kidding, Fitty. Just kidding. Steve Clifford honestly wishes he could get there right now. The Charlotte Hornets fans do. Hopefully they can still get there with this crazy winning that they're doing. How do we feel about it at first, and how do we feel about it now? Is there a difference in opinion as we go around the room? Uh... At first, I was kind of wait and see about it. I didn't really have a strong opinion either way. But now, uh, I enjoy it because I like the urgency of it. I like the win and go home aspect. We know uh, pretty much 95% of the time in the NBA, the best team is going to win a series. But to have that kind of one and done element or, you know, if you win and, you know, some of the advancement, but then you can still get knocked out. So just the urgency, the suddenness of the playing games, I do enjoy Fiddy, did you like it at first, and has your opinion changed on it either way as we've gone on? Nah, I didn't really care for because over half your league already makes the playoffs, and you know the, what it means when these stats aren't even – they don't even have a place in the history books. Like, you play the play-in game, it, it, you have no historical reference that the Hornets got beat by 30 twice in the play-in. Like, Hornets <laughs> fans know it, but it's not logged in the regular season or the postseason for that season – Therefore, making it an irrelevant game. I was against. Well, baseball it. has planned on just a wild card playing. Yeah, a wild card. But it's a best of three. Mm. It, it was one game for a little it bit. To, yeah, but, but it counted toward. MLB counted it towards the playoffs. Well, I mean, the NBA does not. Well, you could change that pretty easily if you just wanted to have some kind of like play-in record if you wanted to. But I was a, I was not a fan at first. But after seeing the way that these teams actually do compete, unless you're Dallas last year, that intentionally bowed out of the play-in just so they could have that 10th overall pick. And look, it worked. Like, Derek Lively has been a big old acquisition for them in the offseason. But it mostly has mitigated that problem. When teams have that choice of getting into the postseason or not, they still want the money that comes along with it for the most part. And so I think the postseason or the in-season tournament has been pretty good. Final thing for me, we were going into... Christian McCaffrey's second year in the league asking how he could improve. Remember his rookie year, he was good, but he was still splitting the backfield with Jonathan Stewart. 2017, his rookie season, they reached the playoffs. He has 117 rushing attempts, 435 yards rushing, two touchdowns on the ground, but also 80 receptions, 651 yards receiving, five touchdowns through the air, showing that dual threat that he had, but not underwhelming from McCaffrey. Just like, okay, it was fine. 
And then we moved on. McCaffrey would become one of the best running backs in the league. And then, of course, now he's playing for the San Francisco 49ers. You like having McCaffrey on your team? Uh, yeah, man. You know, he's been a welcomed addition, <laughs> to say the least. I figured. I figured that was the case. All right, we have another hour to go here on Wes and Walker. Plenty more to get to. Sports Radio 92.7 WFNZ.